Welcome to the Symbolic Lodge of Conversation, where consciousness and curiosity interweave into discussion. This is All Square Podcast. I'm your host, R.L. Franks, and today's guest has been a Mason for over 30 years. He's a practicing lawyer in the area, and his take on Masonry is very insightful over the decades that he's been serving the craft. We're going to get to know illustrious brother, Doug King. Doug, thank you for being on All Square Podcast. Hey, Robbie, thanks for having me on here. Uh, I think this is, what, your 18th podcast? And I read, I've watched uh, quite a few of them, and it's been exciting to watch this uh, grow, and, and I'm very glad to be here in this environment with you. You know, Doug, I've always appreciated our friendship, your your words of advice for me as I've been now embarking on almost 11 years in the mm-hmm. fraternity this Friday. Doug, you've seen a lot. You've been a part of a lot of different branches in masonry, but how did you get involved in this fraternity? Well, I uh, yeah, I've been in around a little bit over thirty years, and uh, uh, I, I got involved in the fraternity really without knowing anything about it. Uh, my uh, girlfriend at the time, my now wife of thirty some years, uh, her father was a director of the little red car unit at the shrine. So it was pretty much unspoken that I would also be driving those little red cars as part of admission to the family. And uh, so they said, well, I, uh, to join, to get in those red cars, to join the shrine, you have to be a Mason first. And I said, what's, what's that? And so I joined and went through very quickly in 1992 for the sole purpose of being able to go into the shrine and get into those red cars. Uh, I had, I remember looking up an article on Freemasonry. I had no idea what it was. Uh, and I thought, okay, it's kind of old. It's kind of conservative or whatever. I, it seems benign. I, I can, I can get through this. And, uh, I went through it. And then, um, it was, uh, that summer of 92 and I went to Florida and talked to my aunt and she said, I have some things for you from your grandfather. Uh, I didn't know that my grandfather was the master of Savannah Lodge in 1967. She brought out his apron, his both of his rings, his past master's ring and his member's ring, and gave those to me. And then it kind of lights went on that, oh, I'm in a Masonic family now. Uh, I've got it uh, on both sides. Uh, and uh, and then I started getting into it, and, and I fortunately knew a lot of great men who mentored me and talked to me. And uh, I was able to advance into different bodies fairly quickly for my age uh, because they had trust in me. And uh, I've tried not to disappoint any of them uh, at any time. And uh, so things developed the way they developed. Uh, I've been a past master twice. I've held other offices throughout uh, the fraternity. Uh, And the greatest thing about the fraternity is I've been involved in some of the newer organizations that have been formed in the last decade or so. And that's the most excitement because they're populated by young men, uh, by and large, you have who are unfettered by traditional concepts of brotherhood. They bring their own brotherhood with them and they build on that. And it's a wonderful and heartening thing to see. So you joined in 1992, right? Yes. What were the dynamics like in the field of, in the fraternity of masonry? Well, by in the 1990s, you still had kind of the old traditional corporate kind of masonry. Um, And what I mean is that you had a lot of Masonic bodies, you had a lot of Masonic activities, a lot of social activities, 
a lot of new members coming in all the time. It was like a machine. That was the, the analogy. Um, there wasn't much education going on. There wasn't much emphasis on, you know, self-development, introspection, those kind of things that came along later. Um, and when you first joined something like that for the first 10 years or so, the masonry is what you're told it is. It is what you see in your lodge. It is what your past masters and mentors tell you it is. And only after a certain period of time can you look back and say, okay, that's what I see it is, but I also see uh, masonry throughout the world. Thanks to the internet, you could look and see masonry in other parts of the world. You could also look and see masonry in the past. Glow is a global enterprise. And you start saying, gee, they do things like that that we don't do here. And this looks very interesting, but I don't see it here. And then you realize, wait a minute, this is just our version of it here. Uh, and that you can create a new version of it for yourself. You can create a new version of it for those around you. And that's kind of the, the path that, that happened. But um, no, it was a very, um, it was a well-developed uh, machine. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. And. And although I would say that between the time I joined my, my lodge and the time I was master, I saw some decay setting in in the machinery. Uh, and you simply didn't have men coming like you had before. You didn't have, you had issues filling out the officer lines. I saw that during that first 10 years. And that's really what made me concerned about where do we go as a fraternity? I love this group. I love these men. Uh, I, I don't want to be what on what appears to be the declining slope. Yeah. So what do you do about that? And I knew that we'd had ups and downs before in the fraternity over its lifetime. And we've certainly had times when we had very strong opposition in the world. We were banned in many countries and still are. So I knew that it wasn't so bad here, but I was concerned about a decline and wanting to get things turned around. Because um, I thought masonry had, masonry was a solution for so many problems. You know, um, if you have a religious struggle, you have an organization that doesn't care about the religion in particular. If you want poor men, wealthy men, middle class to be together in the same group, then you eliminate social standing and wealth as a, as a qualifier. It's not even discussed. It's an equalizer among men uh, that allows men to be men and push aside all the stuff they have to deal with during their work lives and during their family lives. They get to focus on quintessential manliness in an environment that's safe there were men listen and they care and love them. But how do you turn that narrative of decline around? Or is it necessary for this fraternity to shrink or decline or be in this declining fashion mm -hmm. right now? Because over two, we've talked in the past on episodes, there was two world wars that really turned this society of the fraternity into our society into a worldwide fraternity. People wanted to find that brotherhood. They were more about the fellowship and camaraderie. Education kind of took a back seat. How do you turn that around in today's society with everything going mm -hmm. on in people's lives? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you've probably heard of this, the old uh, uh, story about the, uh, the uh, English uh, 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 artillery uh, squad out in the desert in World War II. And uh, I have not. They're they're they've got they're all set up. It's a twelve man crew, and everybody's doing something right, loading, aiming, whatever. And there's the twelfth man standing there, just standing off to the side by himself. And the colonel comes up and says, "Hey, what um, 
I see you're setting this up and you're doing well. What's this 12th guy for? He's there to hold the horses. Well, there were no horses anymore to pull gun carriages around. The tradition just kept rolling along. We need that guy. He's the horse guy. We can't get rid of him. And it doesn't cost us anything to keep him there. So there he is. So so when you get to the point where you're running decade after decade of the same kind of thing, I think what I thought was, well, let's go back to first principles. Let's go all the way back to 1717 or farther back and look and see what the creators of the craft wanted it to be. Who did they want it to be for? So let's return to the past and reinvent and rediscover who we are. And then we can look at what we do now and say, okay, this is in line with ancient things. This is a carry, we're doing this exactly the way they did it hundreds of years ago. Wonderful. But this thing over here that we do, this is something somebody cooked up some other time and it doesn't really fit. So we can probably let that go. So you have to be able to, uh, you know, divide the, the chaff from the wheat masonically because uh, everything you do isn't necessarily good, even if it doesn't appear to, to burden you. If it doesn't support your mission and your core values, you probably want to get rid of it. So the process for me was let's examine what's core about masonry that we need to keep. And then the other stuff we can you know, push aside and deal with later. But let's strengthen those core values. Because yeah. masonry is all about core values. It's essentially tenets, core values for life. And if you just revisit them and put them first... Uh, you're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna expand and grow in application, and they're gonna push aside all these, you know, unnecessary tertiary things that have kind of glommed themselves onto the hull of your ship. So that's what we did. I was, let's go back to first principles. What are we all about? That led to the question about, as I said before the interview, why are we still around? Why does this organization persist after three or four hundred years? Yeah, exactly. I mean, is, doesn't anybody wonder about that? I mean. Uh, we've outlived many political uh, movements, many religious sects and denominations. Um, there's very few things that are older than we are. We've certainly outlived every social organization uh, that's out there. Well, why is that? What are we unique? Uh, why are we? Why are we unique? If we're unique, well, um, I think it comes with our philosophies and our principles and our traditions that we hold so closely. It's those going through those same steps that men before, I mean, I think that's what brings us together. We both, unfortunately, non-Masons won't understand this, but we both understand our journey and what our journey has entailed. Mm -hmm. Some lodges fail in that, but the Masons who are involved, the passionate Masons, understand that. I mean, you've been in other states, probably in other countries, and met men, and you already know who they are once... You're able to talk to them in a way where he is a legit Mason, mm -hmm. right? Right. Yeah. You yeah. talked about this concept of the organism of mm -hmm. Masonry. You want to go into that more? Yeah. Or? It's just a kind of a concept I've been trying to kind of work with, and it's not a completed idea and anything, but but it seems to me that, um, you know, the, the Lodge is an organism. It has uh, Lodge's... Uh, this may be heresy, but they are uh, like anything living. If it doesn't die, how do you know it was ever alive? That organizations of every kind have have arcs, and cycles, beginning, ends, etc., and hopefully rebirth. Uh, but they have to have a. If they're static, 
nothing static. So if they think they're static, um, then they're probably not, they're probably actually in a downward decline. That's the static kind of idea I was talking about with mm -hmm. a lot of lodges when I joined. They did the same things every year and did them fairly well. But um, uh, um, in, in the organism concept for the lodge applies also to the individuals in the lodge. So lodge is just a symbol of the members and vice versa, microcosm, et cetera. So um, if you want to say, okay, a lodge can't be static. It has to have, it has to be developing and trying new things. It has to keep growing. Same thing with the members. Um, um, we have a chamber of reflection we've been using in our lodge for a number of years. And then one of the components is that, is that the member, before he starts his work, before he takes his first degree, he goes into this and he's prepared. And part of the preparation is that he has to answer questions. It's a testament. He has to answer questions uh, that we give him to write out that um, reveal where his thoughts are, what kind of person he is at that time, at that moment. And we, we keep those questions. Now, in five or 10 years, we'll, we'll bring those out and we'll ask him again, Five years ago, before you were a Mason, these were your answers to these important questions. Uh, would you change any of those answers now? Uh, so it's a way of measuring the arc in your own development. Uh, and I tell guys, uh, if you really want to get an honest appraisal of whether Masonry has made a difference to you, ask your wife. Ask your wife. Ask your wife or your, your significant other. Someone who sees you 24-7, the good, the bad, the ugly, uh, who sees you at your worst and at your best, and then ask them, am I a better man because of my becoming a Mason? I think that sometimes, I think you can, with some women, you can hit that, or significant others, you can hit that right on the head, and they'll see it by the actions that this fraternity preaches on. In other ways, especially in today's society, um, I think a lot of women are not educated on our fraternity because we mm -hmm. may have lacked in having our members be able to talk to their wives because they feel like they got to keep everything a secret. Mm -hmm. I'll, I bet you've heard that after somebody went through their entered apprentice degree, they went home, their wife asked them, well, what happened? I can't talk about it. Not the best approach when dealing with this new thing of the fraternity with your significant other. So I think we need to work on more mm -hmm. with educating and articulating what is masonry and what we can talk about with our significant others. Cause there's not a, there's not a lot we can't talk about. Oh, I agree. And, and, and with your significant other, your spouse, it's your family generally, you need to talk about the fraternal experience to them. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, um, if you say, I, I joined this great organization and we do this charitable work, we believe in the, you know, we believe in how men can be great leaders and fathers and all this stuff. If you come and talk to them about that, then they may hold you to it. And maybe yep. men don't want to be held to it necessarily. You're you're putting yourself out there by saying I'm accepting a challenge to be better than I what I am now through the organization, so they will make a judgment about you uh, as to are you still the same lout you were before, and they'll say I don't think your lodge is worth anything. Your fr your fraternity is just a bunch of goofy guys in hats because you didn't change any. 
how do why would I think that they're capable of changing men? So there's risks there mm-hmm. to doing that. But I still think the need to measure your own arc, your own improvement, your own development as a man outweighs those risks. Oh, uh, I totally agree with you on all that. Let's go back to that chamber of reflection. The So you talked about you get some questions that you need to answer and you'll reevaluate those at a later time. But let's talk about the, sim- the symbolism of the chamber of reflection and why that's such an important first step into your journey. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. Right. The, the, the chamber of reflection is derived from what we believe was a practice of the, the Greek, the ancient Greek mysteries of Greece. Now, we don't have a lot of hard information on the mystery schools, but we know enough about them to know that part of that was in a preparation was that the individual man goes into some place where he's removed from everything he's familiar with. He's alone. Uh, he's uh, somehow in a very uh, uh, cold, very dark, very unyielding place. And then he comes out from that to the light of his new experience. Some people say that it uh, represents a psychological death, and then he's reborn into the fraternity in a psychological fashion. It could be that. Uh, and, and anyway, it, at, at, at least, uh, it takes the man who's worked all day, and you bring him to the lodge, and you put him in that quiet room, and you tell him, forget your day. Forget everything you did today. Just focus on these things in front of you. Focus on the question. Just draw your mind together quietly as a preparation for what he's going to go through. Uh, that exercise of simply withdrawing into your own self in the quiet of your own mind, we don't do much of that. It's a meditative thing. We don't do much of that. But I think that that's a great benefit at that moment. And maybe he'll adopt the meditation practice throughout his life for at least a moment per day mm-hmm. just to draw on himself quietly and, and, and structure his thoughts and relax. Uh, but, but that's the point. It's a psychological, symbolical reminder of a process that's beginning with you in the earth, and then you're born into this new psychological world of the fraternity. Could one make parallels with Plato's allegory of the cave with that? In Plato's Republic, I believe, right? Well, I you might be able to because on its face, it looks like it's got the components. It's got the topography of the cave in it. Uh, but the cave is a lot more going on in it under Plato's guise. It's not just a dark space that you come out of and seek light. There's, uh, you are, you are, while in the cave, you're viewing what you think is light, what you think is life in the cave. And then you come out and you realize that's not really it. I was, I've been watching shadows of life and now I see real life. That really doesn't have a correspondence with the, the with the experience there. Okay. Um, but, um, uh, who knows? It, they, they were both the, the, the cave, uh, uh, allegory and the mystery schools operated in the same time period the same region of of the Mediterranean. So it's very likely there was some correspondence there between them, and maybe one was influencing the other. But I don't get much into the cave allegory. Yeah. I, I've never been satisfied fully with my explanations or understandings of it to my own mind. Mm-hmm. But uh, Let's talk about education. Your, your lodge is Phoenix 123. We've had another one of your brothers on our podcast, Kevin Fuller. I see from our friendship, from attending your lodge, you guys really 
take a stance on education and providing that to men who are looking for that in today's society, Mm -hmm. in a place where they can dwell and talk and have conversations, create presentations. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about your lodge's dynamics and what you guys are doing in Phoenix. We we were blessed with a lot of young men who were willing in, in the past 15 years or so, a lot of young men who were willing to take that up and were willing to do the work uh, that education requires. Uh, and, and our education isn't necessarily uh, uh, lectures or formal papers. It is more like, hey, this is, this is an article I brought in. I've read it. These are my thoughts. What are your thoughts? And then you have a conversation. And that's what most of this, most of our education is. It's, it is coupled with the Grand Lodge programs on the structures and things like that, basic symbolism. But the goal of education, I think, is I want to know what you're thinking. And, and you may say, I don't know anything about the subject matter. But I said, just listen. Listen to it. And then in, the, in your mind, you're a Mason now. There's something in your mind that you've picked up, even as a young Mason, that will allow you to respond to this genuinely. So just think about it and do it. And no one's right. No one's wrong. Um, we come out with um, something that's unplanned, but it's a wonderful takeaway. Uh, the education, to my mind, uh, is we're, we gather in lodges. We have to have a group effort. You have to have a group of officers to open a lodge. One officer can't do it. Why is that? Why do we have a collective effort to open the lodge? Well, there's lots of reasons for that. But there's also, in my mind, a collective group for education. In a group of men who are different in backgrounds and personal uh, preferences, uh, they all come together as, as on the level, so to speak. And, and in that environment, uh, I think that's a perfect environment for learning. From the guy who knows it all to the, the newest guy who really doesn't even know what's what. I think that environment of acceptance and love between those men is the best teaching environment there is. And uh, we're not talking about mathematics or hard science. We're talking about my understanding of myself and my world. It's a very, very hands-on topic. Uh, everybody, everyone has an opinion about themselves. Everyone has an opinion about whether they're the person they should be or their shortcomings or how do I, how do I live a life that makes sense? Those are eternal questions. And those are essentially the we try to give the answers to those questions through the various education topics. So men coming in into your lodge or into lodges should take a very individualistic approach to themselves and how to apply this. Yeah, it's as I said, it's uh, masonry is an is a, pr- a project of self interest primarily, not group or collective effort. I think properly understood. In my opinion, it's a it's a mechanism for the improvement of the individual, and everything the improved individual does from that point on, collectively, family, society, marriage, government, um, that's a derivative of his own development. So we focused on that. That's why it's always, what do you think? I'm not going to lecture you, and have you what spit it back at me. I just said these concepts. How does that ring with you? Mm-hmm. How do you relate to that? What's your response to something I've said? That's what I want. And that's how they grow and they start to um, not only hear other people's and respond to it, but at some point they start hearing that voice in their head that they haven't heard before. And they say, oh, I I didn't realize that fit or, oh, this makes sense. 
yeah. reflecting, critically thinking on these topics mm-hmm. of conversations is important. You know, right worshipful Roberto Sanchez, I often quote him on the show, you know, we don't need a bunch of talking parrots who are just saying it to say it, but doesn't yeah. understand the meaning yeah. to convey it. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And I, th- I see that with these newer Masons coming in because they're not about the titles and sitting in a chair. It's all about self-improvement and what can I do for myself mm-hmm. and how can I, after I better myself, also contribute to humanity, mm-hmm. to my local community, right. to my family. Mm-hmm. That's so important. So you go through these degrees, you now have members, you have these engaging conversations, you have them contemplating with themselves. What's next for a modern Mason? What should they be looking for? What should they be a part of in the fraternity? You're talking about what, where they should go within the fraternity itself? <laughs> yeah. Or um, should they just stay focused on their Blue Lodge? Yeah. Yeah. Um, American Masonry seems to, um, it's babatized. In other words, it's the more things you join, the more uh, campaigns you join, the more musical instruments you bang and play, the better. The more noise you make, the better. Uh, That's American Masonry. And so men join the fraternity, and if they're at all active, they belong to every part of it. Okay? Both the rights, et cetera, et cetera. And they're involved in all of that stuff. But they're probably their involvement is uh, a mile wide, but only an inch deep. And I, the problem with that is that's a kind of a superficial approach. Each one of those organizations have deep water to explore. But if you're always on the surface, uh, you never get down to the depths of it. So we always encourage our new members that the Blue Lodge itself is the core. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's more. There's more in the symbolisms and philosophy of the Blue Lodge degrees, there's more there than you'll ever need in a lifetime. You mean it's more than just another business meeting? And no. it can be more than that? Or yeah. it could be more than that? Yeah. It, um, again, if, if you're static, the business meeting is, uh, you promote the business part of it, the paying of bills and things like that, uh, because it fills the time. Because God help us if you have 20 minutes left over <laughs> between cake and donut, between donuts and coffee with nothing to do. Well, let's get the education guy in here for 10 minutes. You know, it's it just becomes a kind of a rote mechanism to do that. And at one time, a lot of Masons were fine with that. But the younger Masons have too many competing, too many things competing for their time and their attention. And they're not going to sit for that because... It, it, it's, it's a business meeting. It's utilitarian. It's what we have to do. Uh, they want what, the extra stuff that we choose to do, the rich stuff, the education, the socialization uh, aspects of it. Uh, that's what they want. So the business meetings are necessary. In, in Phoenix, we, we really don't have much of a business meeting. Everything is done, is approved beforehand so that the meetings are as wide open for new members, ritual work, but also the education part of it. Uh, and I think that that brings people back. Uh, your lodge has much greater attendance at an average meeting than ours does. Uh, we just kind of have a certain amount, but I, I I'm comfortable with that because what goes on among those dozen or fifteen brothers is pretty magical stuff. You know, there is uh, some interpretations of the ritual that when you open your meeting ritualistically, that you're kind of uh, symbolically standing in in heaven, 
Heaven. Yeah. There okay. is there's no east or there's no east or west, there's no north or south. Even time itself, there's no time in this space. Uh, and so when you create this special environment where where everyone's a brother, where there's nothing, there's no strife, there's no discord, there's pure harmony, like heaven might be. Mm-hmm. We create that space for every meeting. That's not the business part. That's just the, we create that space because we're going to bring new members in. We're going to have education in this rarefied air of this, uh, of this special spot. And is it just psychological? Is it spiritual? That's for each member to decide what he thinks is going on there. But that's what we were given, the process of creating these spaces twice a month. Yep. And uh, we, we, we still do that. That has not faded. That's not been skipped. I would submit a lot of men don't understand why we open and close the way we do. But if you think of it as a psychological preparation, like a flower opening itself up to the sun, uh, a lot of allegories like that, that then you say, oh, this I should be preparing my mind right now, not on my phone. I should be preparing myself for the experience of being in a room, in a space, among brothers who I love and respect, where something very special can happen to us, where we're of like minds, and the world is all outside. The bills, the job, the wife, they're outside for a few hours. And here's peace. You know, we talk about before the podcast, you said there's two doors in a Masonic Lodge room. One's at Chamber of Reflection. Where you where you walk out of and you never go back in, yeah, yeah. And then there's the door to the lodge where the members come in and it's guarded by the Tyler, right, right, right. And you talked about how you know he's out there to protect that that space. I mean, if I had it my way, I would rip the clock right out of the uh, lodge room <laughs> because I don't want to focus on the time. Yeah, I want to focus on the experience I'm getting here. Mm-hmm. And you can really lodges have missed making that space into something truly special. I know you and I have been a part of other appendant organizations in the fraternity and we've experienced that mm-hmm. with that brotherhood, with that camaraderie, with that education, with that ritual, it all comes combining together. It's alchemy in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. It's a spiritual alchemy mm-hmm. where it's I get refreshed and re-energized by being around these like-minded men from all different walks of life. And I would love to be able to have that replication in the modern blue lodges where right. people start. Because if you get that fire around their head and you get them excited on what they're talking about, they're coming back. Mm-hmm. You know, you said that you've noticed that other lodges around the world are doing things different because you said the modern American Mason, you know, get a petition. They go to all these other different yeah. appendant bodies, the shrine, the Scottish Rite, the Orc Rite, Grotto, all that, Eastern Star. What are you seeing on an international level that these lodges are doing? Well, I, I don't, I see that there, there's kind of types of masonry around the world. There's the English type, which is social masonry. There's masonry in the Mediterranean and South America, which is, it's uh, it's more philosophical, albeit perhaps a little more political in the sense because okay. of the histories. Um, American masonry is 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 mostly a social, uh, mostly a social experience, 
um, similar to English lodge work. Uh, and it's the American and the English lodges that seem to have uh, issues right now. Uh, the, the South American lodges are doing fine, thank you very well. Uh, the Italian lodges, the German lodges, uh, the lodges in the Philippines, uh, they have a mix that is, is keeping them going fairly strong. Uh, here in the United States, we have uh, the soul searching going on about what are we doing or what are our numbers doing? Who are we? What are we? Um, so I, I see most of the world is not so much changing so much. I see changing is coming and we're in the middle of them here in the United States. And maybe it has to do with the American personality. You know, we're, we're people of extremes, aren't we? we? We're not in the middle on anything. We have, you know, we, we have Puritanism over here, and we have slave owners over here, and, and uh, you know, that's, that's where we come from. And uh, how we somehow uh, balance these uh, these warring kind of factions in our own minds, I don't know. But I think it's, a, it's the American uniqueness that, Larger may be better in a lot of respects, and I, I'm fine with large, uh, but we tend to be up and down. We tend to have cycles in the United States uh, that go over generations. And you mentioned this before about, you know, whenever there's a world war, our numbers spike, and then we dwindle down a little bit more. But in the last 10 or 15 years, there's a new impulse within American masonry that was not there before. Um the education, the focus on a philosophical approach to the fraternity, uh, a kind of a moving away from just, uh, you know, the marketing campaigns and the big charitable organizations. Uh, they're moving away from those things, partly because I don't know how effective they've become for us. Uh, and they're focusing more on traditional methods. They're focusing more on, on the, the experience of the candidate. You know, we don't want to make widgets anymore, a thousand a day. We want to personalize uh, we are craftsmen, after all. So we want to make the that fine-tuned watch. It may take a while. You talked about off-air when we were sitting around having a drink and having a cigar that masonry brings a certain status in your life. Can you go into that and talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, this has to. Do, this goes back to the why, the big why. Why are we? Why are we here? Why are we still around? What what accounts for it? And uh, it seems to me that there might be, um, I've been doing some reading and stuff about the, um, you know, the need of uh, people for status or higher, dominance hierarchy kind of theories out there. That explains a lot about human behavior, especially among men. Um, you, you, you want to have status as a human being, as a man, and you get status by selling more widgets, making more money, having a better car, better looking wife, big house. Those are status things, and it's okay to do that. That's who we are. We because the more status you have, traditionally, the more likely you are you will survive the next winter, or you will not be killed by somebody breaking in. So it it really it it's evolutionary in a way. Status yields direct results uh, to prolong your life and improve your chances to reproduce and and so on. So uh, so if if status is that, I, I thought maybe. The, the purpose of masonry is to provide status to all men. You don't have to have money to be a mason. You don't have to come from a family to be a mason or be related to a king to be a mason. Um, you don't have to belong to this group or that group. Um, it, it opens its doors to all men of good faith who, who then, by joining it, get a certain status imputed to them. 
Um, and, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that um, we all want status, but we're all saying, no, I would never do that. I, I'm self-effacing and, uh, you know, it's, I'm, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> it's always the, I give away everything to everybody else. And, you know, it's not about me. It's about everybody else. We're rubbish. It's always about us first. And, and I think that if you just say, yeah, well, I, I want to have status. Uh, and the fraternity is the most benign way of doing it. You can join and have the status of a 4 million men fraternity, oldest in the world, been around the entire globe, uh, a, a unique social organism throughout history, and you can be part of that very easily. And all you got to have is a few dollars in your pocket and be willing to to learn and to be a good uh, friend to other men. And you've got that that status. That it answers the question of why 95% of our members don't even come to Lodge. They pay their dues and they carry a card around and maybe they have a lapel pin, but that is worth it to them. And we may say, well, these guys need to come back and participate and we need someone to scrub the pans after the bean supper, blah, blah, blah. But no, what they're telling us is they join for the status. They respect and, and they gain status from this great institution. They have a high opinion of it, partly because maybe their father or grandfather joined and they were great men. And so now they're part of that tradition. And just being that card-carrying member is a tremendous thing. And we ought not knock that. Okay. I know that's, I think that's a great, I think that's a great point to it. You know, we live in the age of the internet. A lot of insight. Internet, right. Inner what? Internet. (laughs) There's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of men, and this is my theory, who are isolated due to social media mm-hmm. and they're recluse and they stay with themselves because they don't know how to interact and masonry engages that interactance by being here for each other, having this conversation. You can mm-hmm. feel the energy just in the room as we talk about our passions of the fraternity, but there are men who are lost and you were talking about that, who are trying to find that status being a part of that fraternity. My question to you is masonry needed now more than ever as you look at the modern men in today's age? Mm-hmm. Uh, I only know what I read on the internet, but uh, <laughs> okay. what I what I seem to to uh, detect is a con- and and it's not just there. It's a, there's a professional concern about the status of men in society. They seem to be getting the rough, the short stick now, and they're being demonized and they're being, they're toxic no matter what they do. Uh, they, um, they're losing ground in education. They're losing ground in so many measurements across society. They're kind of withdrawing from society in a lot of ways. They're sitting in their basement with their, you know, Fortnite. And, uh, and that's not a good thing for a society to have men uh, who who kind of back away from the role of perhaps being, you know, this this risk taker, a person that goes out, sets goals, and, and makes conquests and and achieves things. I don't think society is going to do well without those men. Women certainly. That uh, doesn't mean that they can't do those roles, but I think you need to have both sexes pulling at the rope um, to do that. But yeah, I I, I wonder why. It seems to me that Freemasonry offers something that every man would be interested in doing. There's nothing about it that a man has to uh, give up to join. 
He doesn't have to stop believing in one thing to join. He doesn't have to be wealthy to join. He really has to give up nothing except some time and basically time to be there to learn and to be incorporated into the organization. What do you think about these religious institutions who talk bad about the fraternity and say they're devil worshipers, they're Satanist, you know, and they spew all this hatred to their congregation to negate them from knocking on our doors. Why do you think, where do you think that started and why do you think that's so prevalent in today's society? And it's not just religious institutions, it's other organizations as yeah. well. Yeah. But I see, I see it more with some of these faith based backgrounds. Yeah, the first papal bull was in 1735 uh, against Masonry. And it wasn't about the ban, was not about anything to do with us at all, about a ritual or anything. It was because we were meeting in secret, and you weren't allowed to meet in secret. If you met in secret, you must have been plotting against the king or the, or the, or the bishop. And that was the nature of the prohibition. And it's obviously expanded now um, to include religious aspects. And and I see that stuff too. We, we're always going to have those oppositions. They're always going to be there because they're driven from ignorance. Um, and so what do we do with that? We can't stop that. But what do we do is we listen to that stuff from time to time. We listen to it a little bit. And then we listen and say, wait a minute, are they right or are they wrong? Are we a religion disguised, you know, uh, something like that? And then you could say, wait, wait a minute. No, we're not because, because, because. So it can be a, a tool to self-measure ourselves, to test ourselves to make sure. And to make sure that, to say that, look, they say that we're not good for society. Well, are we good for society or not? We have to ask ourselves that. Are we collectively as a lodge good, as a fraternity? Am I good for society? So if they're going to criticize me, you listen to your critics because they can be your best teachers and taskmasters. Okay, I'm going to prove you wrong, and this is why. Or maybe you're right in this respect, and we need to improve. So we use that. We can't get rid of them in, in the age of the Internet. Uh, it surrounds us. It's like, a, it's like the air we breathe. But we can still simply use them as reminders and as teaching tools uh, to improve what we do. You talk about education, where I'm noticing in today's society, there's a big spiritual movement, Wiccan, esoterics, hermetics. So much stuff is out there for the general public. And I think men are looking for those philosophies and those kind of studies. And you believe that we are the most educated that we've ever been as a society. Mm-hmm. But how do you navigate through the hermetic arts, the esoterics, the occult, in the traditional sense of hidden knowledge? How do you, how do you how does one navigate through that mm-hmm. in today's society? Yeah, I guess I would divide. I'd want to distinguish between sure. uh, kind of the esoteric, traditional Western esotericism, okay, which is. Kabbalah, which is her, uh, Hermetics, these kind of underground philosophical religious movements that have been around forever. I'm not certain that a new guy coming to Masonry knows anything about them or cares. To him, the kind of the exoteric Masonry is as mysterious to him as anything else. 
Um, and so it is that part of masonry that I think we focus on with that man, because that's just as strange and hidden as anything that experienced Masons would say, well, here's the Blue Lodge, here's, here's the exoteric, but we can go beneath it and there's all these movements. But to him, they're, they're equally mysterious. He doesn't know the difference. Uh, and so I would say, um, I would try to deal with him and say, look, the, these really aren't mysteries in exoteric masonry. They're not mysterious at all. They're allegories. They're symbols. They're just representations of ideas. And because the ideas, we don't just simply write them out. And that would be religion. We say, here's a symbol. And it may mean these things. You contemplate that symbol. And maybe the deity will speak to you through the symbol. And you'll say, ah, oh, okay, that's what it means to me. You interpret these things on your own. That's as far as the mystery goes, I think. Because again, it's him, himself listening to his own interpretation of symbols and allegories and everything else, which are the, that's the palette that we use in the fraternity. Uh, the written word is not important as much as symbols are. I think you'd agree with that. I would 100% agree with that. Yeah. yeah. Doug? I appreciate you coming on today, talking, discussing Freemasonry. The last question I have for you is, what's one thing, what's your message you want to say to the public about the fraternity? Well, the fraternity is nothing more than your neighbors. It's your father, your grandfather, your uncles. It's family members going back generations that you probably didn't even know they were Masons. But everyone stands at the tip of a long line of Masonic uh, involvement, Masonic influence in this country. And America is a particular claim on Masonry toward its own greatness as a nation. So if you're patriotic, Masonry is a great support for that because we have this great historical background in the fraternity informing our nation. But it, it is no no different than, let me put it this way, um, put the, list the 10 best attributes or virtues that you expect from men in society right now. Those 10 aspects, those 10 virtues, put those together. And I would say to you, those are the core values that every Mason follows. That, every, that masonry is based, it was created to allow men to express and live. It's no more complicated than that. That is my brother, Doug King. I'm R.L. Franks, and you are all square. Thank you, illustrious. Thank you. Hey, R.L. Franks here. Thanks again for watching today's episode. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Also, if you believe someone can benefit from the message that we provided on today's podcast, send it over to them. You may inspire them.